And so uh, for us, we are in our study of the minor prophets, and we're looking at the last of the minor prophets, and that is Malachi. So this is the last one we're going to look at. We haven't looked at all of them, uh, but uh, just by way of remembrance, uh, we are, are there. And, and so for Malachi, Malachi is actually, if you want the context of this book, it's going to correlate with Nehemiah uh, and Ezra. He's contemporaries of Ezra and Nehemiah. Most of the content is actually going to uh, kind of go back and forth with with Nehemiah, and um, so if you want that, but also read Obadiah because Obadiah was the prophet who was speaking of the nation of Edom, which we're going to see in our passage here. So, just if you're one that likes to, hey, what else is going on at this time? Ezra Nehemiah. Um, that's a little bit more historical on Ezra's part, and then Obadiah. So we're going to look at the first five verses of Malachi. So would you stand as we recognize the word of God to us uh, from uh, the word of the Lord to Malachi. So the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hell country and left his heritage to jackals in the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would speak by your word, and as it then brings us to the table where we just see your grace and your mercy on display, God, I pray that the words of an Old Testament prophet uh, and the the sensible signs of uh, the bread and the cup, God, that they would all point to uh, the gospel. They would point to your goodness and your grace. While we deserved your wrath, uh, you show your people mercy. And so, Father, I pray that that would be known and understood today, and I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So kind of it's interesting in our culture right now uh, as, um, you know, our culture talks about uh, roles of men and women and all of those uh, different aspects. There's this phrase that's floating around right now that is toxic masculinity. And toxic masculinity, at least our, as our culture would define it, uh, is where uh, men uh, would abuse their masculinity uh, in some form of oppression. But it's actually become uh, pejorative of pretty much all masculinity that uh, our culture would say and points to many different ways that any version of masculinity is bad. Well, the scriptures would pu- push completely opposite of that, and it's interesting because uh, all the social science and, and all the research around, uh, around the family and around the role of a father in a family, uh, especially for sons as they grow up, what is the most important thing that they need from their dad? 
What's the most important thing that they need from their dad? And this is kind of the science relating to, uh, to sons and the research there. Some would say, you know, a stable environment. Some would say maybe it's uh, provision and we're going to give them a nice home. Or we're going to give them, you know, different things and, and privilege and all of those different things. The most important thing that sons need to hear from their dad is I love you. I love you. I'm proud of you. I think the world of you. Sons need to hear that from their dads more than anything else. And the research blows it away. Why? Because there's something ingrained, I would say, in all of us, but especially a son who is growing and trying to find his way and trying to figure out what it is to be a man in this world, that the words of his dad to him are profound because they define and they start to frame who he is in this world. I think the claim can be made definitely with all different parts of the family. But it's interesting how fathers and their words to a son are so powerful. Now, we've not all had a great experience uh, from our dads. And I'm not, uh, I'm not there claiming that we all have. But yet it is interesting where God starts to really put on the heart of dads to start to speak love for their kids over, or their love for them over their kids. Because in that, uh, we start to hear and start to believe God's declaration of his love. So that even in this passage, you heard that, that God says to his people, I have loved you. Uh, and this is about 80 years after the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Okay? So we looked at Haggai. That, and remember, they came back from Babylon. They had kind of hit pause on rebuilding the temple. And uh, in God's word comes from Haggai and says, you need to get back to building the temple, in which they do. So here we are 80 years later, uh, and Haggai and Zechariah, uh, while they, they instructed the people to rebuild the temple, they also gave them some incredible promises. Promises that, you know, the ESV study Bible lists as these. That he promises his blessing, the, the engrafting of nations into the people of God, prosperity, expansion, peace, and the return of God's own glorious presence. And after all of that, God says, I have loved you. That word love, God's for them, God is with them, God's affection is on them. You know, the, the character of God is not just love now, but it is an everlasting love. His love doesn't end. He loved them in their childhood as a nation. Hosea points to that. He loved them in their faithlessness. He loved them when they didn't love him back. God loved them. It's interesting, we read earlier, and, and, and Todd talked about it, the idea of covenant love. And, and that word covenant is all throughout the book of Malachi. So what is a covenant, right? It's not a contract, right? We, we get married and we, we have the marriage covenant to each other. And, and covenant in terms of, of God relating to his people is, is what one uh, commentator would say is a bond made in blood initiated by God. So a covenant is God coming towards his people and he seals his bond with his people in blood. 
That's why there's sacrifices all over the Old Testament. That's why the blood of Jesus was necessary to be shed, because it is the blood of the new covenant. And so this declaration of, of God binding himself to his people, he says, I have loved you. The almighty God has loved sinful, undeserving people who are only worthy of his wrath and condemnation. What a sentence. And not just, I love you now, but I have loved you. I have shown my, act, my love for you in continual action, and again, I continue to show it even now. God not only loves them, but he continues to show his love for them in acts on their behalf. So uh, I was looking at... Um, uh, I was looking at a post this past week, only two days ago, and when we, when we hear the idea that where God says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, we're like, what is that? Well, one guy uh, kind of jokingly tagged this picture uh, as Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Two brothers, <laughs> one who won the lottery big time and one who won $7. Uh, you know, that, you know, if God loves you, then you'll win the lottery. While the other brother that God doesn't set his effect on, you know, while other people suffer, right? Uh, but what's interesting is this line of thinking, if, if we're the people of God, we're going to hit the lottery. That's the line of thinking that's going on here with the God's people in Malachi. Because God says, I have loved you. Did you hear what their response was? They say, no, you haven't. You know, we didn't hit the lottery. They ask the question, how have you loved us? And so even when God declares his love to us, then there is our doubt of his love. That There's something natural in the human condition, even in those whom God uh, knows and knows the things of God, that there's this intrinsic doubt of his love, that the main focus of Malachi— is God refuting erroneous thoughts by his people. So in this case, uh, it is when God declares his love, how do they respond? Well, um, whoops. Uh, they, sorry, let's go back. They, they respond by questioning, um, how have you loved us? Oh, I did have that. Sorry. Um, you know, I, I've loved you, but how have you loved us is their question. Well, all throughout the book of Malachi is this idea that God says something or God shows something of his love, and then God's people be like, really? You know, God says he loves them, they say, yeah, right. That really sounds like a sassy teenager more than the covenant people of God, right? But yet it's the pattern of this book that God shows himself and God's people push back. Okay, It shows up in Malachi 2. We're going to flip through this quickly. That he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. Uh, but you say, why does he not? Malachi 2.17. Uh, You've wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? Well, by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Malachi 3. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. 
return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, well, how shall we return? Malachi 3.8, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, well, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and in your contributions. And then in verse 13 of chapter 3, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? And the whole book is God's people doubting God's love and God's word to them. You know, back to chapter 1, in order to understand what they're saying in this phrase, in this particular question, how have you loved us? In order to understand that, we have to understand God's response. Because it's God's response that begins to explain why they ask the question. Okay? They are correct in their assessment of their current struggles. Okay? They, they came out of captivity. Yes, it was years later, but their view of history and ours, we have very short view of history. You know, like an old song is from the 80s. That'd be like brand new in Israel, right? You know, like, wow, it's only 40 years old. But anyway, um, their view of history, yes, captivity, uh, a meager-looking temple that they rebuilt, not much economic flourishing. They're correct in their assessment of their current situations, Okay? Oops. But yet, they miss. What do they miss? They miss they, because they assume this. They say, how have you loved us? What they are doing is they are equating their current struggles, and they're setting those equal to, if I struggle, God does not love us anymore. Does that make sense? That's what they're doing. Yes, captivity. Yes, a meager-looking temple. Yes, economic uh, difficulty and a lack of flourishing. But they were saying that means God doesn't love us. And if you're honest at all, and I'm honest at all, something has probably come into your life, some struggle, some difficulty, some relationship that is broken, something has entered to say, and then we start to think, if this is here, can God really love me still? If God loved me, would he allow this into my life? One author suggests that the despair and the doubt uh, is triggered by the, the, the apparent failure of the promises to Haggai and Zechariah. And it led these people to start pouting about Yahweh, that he has forgotten his covenant with Israel. Yahweh being another way and the the covenant name of God translated the Lord in many Old Testament passages. So it's interesting, before they went to exile, they forgot God because they had a bunch. Now after exile, they are doubting God because they don't have anything. The human heart can start to doubt God wherever you are. If if you got flourishing, you're going to doubt God, or, or you're going to forget God because you don't need him anymore. If you don't have anything, you're going to doubt God because, man, he should have gave me more. The human heart is this interesting thing. And then how does God answer? God answers with, is not, uh, is not Jacob, Esau Jacob's brother? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Just a reminder of who these guys are. Who are Jacob and who are Esau? So God comes to Abraham, uh, and he promised, makes promises to Abraham. Abraham is the father 
of uh, Israel and the father of uh, God's people. His son is Isaac, uh, uh, by which the covenant flows through. And then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Twins. Esau is the firstborn. So Esau is the oldest. Esau is the firstborn son. Esau has all the rights and the privileges of the family. That's Esau. But yet, what does God do in this family? So this is to their mother, Rebekah. God says this in Genesis 25. That the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And in that day, to us, that's like, oh yeah, you know, the younger, you know, he kind of made a way for himself. In that day, that is like unheard of because the older always had prominence over the younger. God says, no, the younger is going to, going to rule over the older. And so when we come back to Malachi, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And if you've never heard that verse before, we're going to do a very quick context on it. Okay, I'm not going to do justice to this to satisfy your curiosity, but I'd love to study it with you. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. What is God pointing to? God is saying that the natural order says that Esau should be the one chosen, yet God chose Jacob instead, the younger. Okay? In this context, uh, context, loved refers to choice rather than affection, and hated refers to rejection rather than animosity. Basically, Jacob I chose, Esau I rejected. The point is not that, that Jacob or God loved Jacob more than Esau. The point is that he loved Jacob rather than Esau. And you say, wait a second, I thought God loved everyone. But there is an, a, a specific, salvific, sorry, similar word, a, a specific love that brings about salvation. And it is brought by the hand of God. The Apostle Paul picks this quote up in, Acts, or in Romans chapter 9. Um, all right, that stopped advancing, so I need you, Matt. Uh, so in Romans chapter 9, verse 13, uh, as it is written, it says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So there's the quote from Malachi chapter 1. So what is the context of this? You go back to verse 10 of Romans chapter 9. And he says, But not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. We'll, hit, we'll just hit pause there. What is that saying? Is uh, basically before they had done, before they were even born, before they had done good or bad, God's purpose was at work. Then they go on to verse 12. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul says, by no means. He goes on. For he says to Moses, 
I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on who I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, those verses might sound offensive and be like, you know what, uh -uh, that doesn't fit my concept of God. But that is actually the best news you will hear all day. Because it is easy to get stuck on how unfair that seems. Why did Jacob deserve to get chosen over Esau, you might ask? And the answer is, he didn't deserve it either. The beautiful thing of the gospel is the good news is that Jacob didn't deserve to be chosen over Esau. The good news is that Jacob was chosen despite being a scoundrel. He was a liar, he was a cheater, he was a conniver, right? And we we tend to doubt God's love, uh, you know, when we think we deserve better. Isn't that interesting? When you think you deserve better than what your circumstances are, then you start to doubt God's love. But when you understand that you don't deserve squat, you deserve his wrath, then you're like, anything I have is upside, It's interesting, because if the covenant love of God is what his promise is, that ought to be enough. And then what's beautiful is then things flow from that that are are, uh, symptomatic of his love for us. And that's what the people of Israel are questioning. They're saying, how have you loved us? Our circumstances don't match you loving us. And we've all said that. We didn't get the job we wanted. We didn't have a relationship work out that we wanted. We don't, we don't have uh, the house that we want. We don't, we, we don't think, you know, our kids are struggling. Whatever it is, we think something else says God doesn't love us. But God's answer is amazing here. He says this in verse 4. He says, if, God's, or if Edom says we are shattered... But we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says that we may build, but I will tear they may build, but I'll tear it down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. He's pointing. God's people are complaining, God, you must not love me. And God says, Hey, look over at Edom. You want to see what my disregard looks like? It's not just my discipline of, yes, I sent you to, sli- uh, to captivity, but I brought you back and restored you. Uh, Edom has been conquered. They are a wasteland. Their cities are like ghost town. They are filled with jackals, basically just desert wilderness. Some versions translate it dragon. That is a wrong translation. Okay, jackal. Uh, and, um, and so Edom is conquered, and they will never be rebuilt. It's a perpetual monument of God's wrath. They'll try to rebuild. There's the human heart. God's trying to humble them, and they're like, we got this. We're going to rebuild, and he's going to frustrate them yet again. It's interesting how often we need to be reminded of the love of God. And that's what this table is. This table is a reminder. This table is is, uh, something that points to, and there's a picture of the love of God. Because we we tend to doubt, even though we know his word is true, but even in in spite of all of that, 
we see God's dedication in spite of our disregard. What, verse 5 talks about your eyes shall see this. God is going to show them how great his love for them. Your eyes, in verse 5, your own eyes shall see this. You shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And here's the beautiful thing. God doesn't just say he loves you. He shows you. Now, we assess it according to our way, and we're like, eh, does God really love us? God, in his faithfulness, will say to his people, I'm going to show you. You will see my goodness. You know, your doubts concerning uh, uh, his love, as Matthew Henry, will be forever silenced. What a beautiful promise. There are times when, there, uh, when our circumstances are desolate. There's no question. But this does not mean that God has removed his love. That's the trap. That's the lie. Instead, his promise is that mercy is in store to his people. He will give reason to praise him. Why? Because our eyes will see. It's interesting. The promise of God's covenant love, yet it speaks to our doubts. And then God, even in our doubts, will say our eyes will see the goodness of God. And we're going to see it at this table uh, as we enter in. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, your word would speak to us. God, that your love to us will be displayed in this table. God, for uh, that you just demonstrated your own love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, thank you for that promise. Thank you that we get to see it. Thank you for the goodness of your grace to us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.